following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians or People Too. Hey, Liz. How's life? Oh, we started classes yesterday, so things are crazy, but it's really nice to have people back on campus. It's been like two students walked into my office yesterday, which hasn't happened for like years. Wow. Oh, we've, yeah. we've, we've been at class since August 10th, and I don't think I've had a single student walk into my office. Brian? Uh, I've had a few, um, but I'm teaching 300 and some odd students right now. So Yeah, so the odds, <laughs> odds are in your favor. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got a few students who, uh, you know, just want to come in and talk. But uh, and you guys, I mean, so, you know, Bill, I told you I met Liz in Berlin and right. um, she they've they've been on, you know, very limited face to face contact for years. This is your first real time back, right? I think things were more normal. I was on leave last fall. OK. Um, and things I, I think were more normal last fall, although there was still a lot online and a lot of and everyone was masked. When I taught in the last spring semester, we were all wearing masks. And I had a bunch of students this morning who were in my classes before and I had like never seen their faces before. So it was yeah. Really nice to, to see them. But yeah, we were definitely more more shut down than I think uh, Georgia was. <laughs> so. Well, Liz, it occurred to me, you've never formally met Bill. So this is my uh, colleague and co-host. Yes. Uh, nice Bill to Allison. meet you. I've heard of you and and, and, and thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for, for doing this. Um, Let's see. I'll, I'll, let me go ahead and do my shout outs. Yeah. Do your shout outs. Okay. Uh, as always, University Press of Kansas, our friends out at the ranch in Lawrence. Hey, uh, UNC Press and all university presses. I think we, we, we owe a shout out to all university presses. Please support university presses. Modern Scholar, Philip Shackelford's podcast, uh, check that out, always good. And Adele Ali's History Behind the News, also very fun and entertaining. That's all I got. All right, I got one quick one. I uh, got an email a couple of days ago from um, a grad student at Texas A&M who wanted me to be on a panel for the uh, S um, the uh, the Society of Military History Conference. I couldn't do it because I'm I'm already um, you know spoken for. But uh, his name is Tristan Kraus, and uh, he mm -hmm. informed me that he is a big fan of the show. So uh, you know, shout out to him. Thanks for letting yeah. us know uh, awesome. that you're that you're listening. Well, we are speaking to Professor Liz or Elizabeth Shesko today. Um, I had the privilege of uh, spending a few days with Liz in Berlin back in uh, in July and uh, over dinner. Uh, yes, yeah, it's like this was at a conference, right? It was yeah. not in the archives. No, it's not in the archives. OK, I just want to <laughs> clarify. Just to, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. A good conference, I thought. I mean, very, very well done. And um uh, had a great time. But uh, at talking to Liz, I realized that uh, that she was, in fact, a military historian, um, even though she she didn't really uh, you do understand it yourself, but you don't really identify as a military historian. But I am a military historian, but I maybe don't embrace it as much as I should. Yeah. So I, I thought it'd be a good idea to have her on. And um, Liz, I'm going to give a little a uh, uh, little background on you here. Uh, Elizabeth 
is an associate professor of history at Oakland University in Oakland County, Michigan. She specializes in Latin American history, race, and ethnicity, and she received her A.B. in Spanish and English at Bowden College in Brunswick, Maine. Uh, she Bowden, went on to oh, earn, Brian, Brian, we're going to edit that. Bowden. Well, Bowden. Right, is it Bowden? right Liz? Bowden. Bowden. My, you know what? The crazy thing is, you can leave that in, because I asked my wife, who's from New England last night, and she told me it was Bowden. Um, well, and the military people will know it because Joshua Chamberlain is was president. college. And yeah, okay. He was a professor he there and president. A man. Right? So, yeah. yeah, I knew that it was Bowdoin. My wife told me that. And she went on to earn her PhD in history from uh, from Duke University, um, where she met one of our former colleagues, uh, Corinna Zeltzman. After completing her PhD, Liz was a postdoctoral research associate and Andrew W. Mellon Fellow in History and Latin American Studies at Bowdoin College. Her first book, Conscript Nation, Coercion and Consent in the Bolivian Barracks, was published with the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2020. Her work has also appeared in edited volumes and the Hispanic American Historical Review and International Labor and Working Class History. Liz has held numerous foreign language and area studies, uh, grants for Spanish, Portuguese, and uh, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation of this. Is it Aymara? It is Aymara. Okay, Aymara. Um, she's active in the profession and a uh, frequent presenter at meetings of the Latin American Studies Association and the American Historical Association. So Liz, we are thrilled to have you here. Thank you for um, for carving out a little time in your day to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. We we start off the same way every time. We've got a uh, kind of a blueprint that we follow, and this podcast is really about you. We can talk about your work, but we're interested in uh, what makes uh, historians tick. You know how they become what they are, and so you know, tell us where you're from. Um, what did your parents do? Uh, you know, how did you get interested in history? Yeah, I'm from the Boston area, and I'm kind of an, an academic brat, I guess. Uh, my my dad was from New York and was really interested in Russian history and ended up uh, starting a PhD at Harvard in the 60s in medieval Russian history. Wow. Okay. And that's where he met my mom, who was an undergrad there. They were married in 68 and in 72, they spent a year uh, in, Rus in, in uh, Moscow for him to do research in the archives. Uh, which was really fascinating time to be in Moscow, as you might as you might suspect. Yeah. As maybe yeah. being, being there today might be as well. <laughs> um, and you know, they said they would hear feedback from the room that they were put in. They knew they were being bugged. <laughs> People always assumed they were spies. Like just really interesting stories. My dad was diagnosed with ADD in his fifties, and that kind of explains that he why he never finished his PhD. Uh, I think he didn't, he also didn't really enjoy the teaching aspect of it. So he kind of drifted out of the PhD program, as many people do, um, and then ended up working in academic administration for his career. So he was, you know, he was an assistant provost at Brandeis doing finance, basically until he retired. Um, my mom actually ended up working at Harvard. She was in project management. She did IT stuff for them, kind of set up one of their early networks and then moved into more project management. So I was around universities all the time growing up, although my parents weren't academics, like it was something that seemed like an obvious career to me, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So then when I went to college, I kind of thought, I think due to lack of creativity kind of thought I would become a professor. Um, I think if I were to have it 
if I were to do it over again, I would have gone in a completely different path. I think academia, while I love the teaching um, and I love the research, I don't love the politics. I don't love the administration. And so I'm not sure I would do it again, especially with the knowledge I have now of how bad the job market became. I was going to say, you you shouldn't say that because there are so many grad students sitting out there listening right now who are going to say, you ungrateful thing. (laughs) I'm totally ungrateful, but I guess in in some ways I'm, it's, it's what I would maybe put it as an act of generosity, right? Like there are some people who need to be in academia, right? That is who they are. They are not suited to other professions. Like this is the thing they kind of need to be doing. I don't think I'm one of those people. Um, And so I think if I'd been a little more creative as an undergraduate or graduate student thinking about what else I could do with my life, I might've done something different. I'm very lucky and I'm very happy with what I'm doing now, Um, but I probably would have taken a different path if I were to start it over again with all the knowledge I have now. Wow. That, you know, we're on, Bill, what interview is this? Are we at, we're in the thirties, right? Yeah. The, Liz, I think you'll be number 15 of season two. So that's 35. Yeah, you're 35, 35 deep. And you're the first person who has said, you know, if I had it to do over again, I'm not sure I would do this. I mean, wow. I'm very happy I'm doing it, right? I'm not giving yeah. it up. I'm not planning <laughs> to quit. Um, but I think, I mean, it's something I say to anyone who's thinking about doing graduate school is that it's just such a precarious choice to make. Yeah. Uh, and if had I known how precarious it was and that it would become much more precarious than when I started, I, I wouldn't have made that choice. Um, if I knew it was going to work out the way it worked out, I'd do it again. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's fair. So when I went to college, I was an English major because I loved, you know, I love literature. I ended up in a Spanish class sort of out of not knowing what to sign up for first semester of my freshman year. <laughs> And I had a great teacher who exposed me to all the things that happened in the Cold War and that outraged me. And that kind of started my path towards studying Latin America. Uh, When I started college, I don't think I would have told, anyone would have guessed that I would end up a Spanish major studying Latin America. And so it was one professor who really made that difference for me and put me on a a different track. And so then when I graduated college, I taught first grade in Guatemala City for two years uh, at an American school there just because I wanted to get back to Latin America. And that's when I decided I really wanted to go to grad school and I started applying to to programs that had strong Latin American history. Well, I was like, how did you end up at Bowdoin in the first place? I basically knew I wanted to go to a small liberal arts college okay. because I didn't want to be at a place where I would disappear in large numbers of students. I wanted kind of close contact with professors, the kind of thing a small liberal arts college offers. And so I applied to all the usual suspects in the kind of Pennsylvania to Maine, New York area. Um, and of the ones I got into, Bowdoin felt like the best fit for me. So I ended up there. Interesting. And, be- and because Maine really is kind of like Massachusetts number two, right? Yeah. And Bowdoin, <laughs> I mean, Bowdoin now is a much more diverse place that draws people from across the country. But at that point in the, this was the, the late nineties there, it was a very much a Massachusetts, a lot of Massachusetts people ended up in Boston. Like when you said I'm from the Boston area, everyone else is from the Boston area too. Yeah. Uh, so it was a kind of, it made sense. So 
you know, I, I want to, I want to ask you a little bit about Guatemala because I can't tell you the number of students who say to me like, oh, I'd just like to go like teach English for a few years in, you know, name the country that you want to go to. Um, but you you actually did that. I mean, how do like, did you go through an organization? Did you just get on a plane and say, I'm going to like go find a job? I mean, how did that happen? I went through an organization. I can't think of how I found it, but um, there are there are basically placement agencies that look for people to teach in, in American schools. And so there was a job fair at a hotel in the Boston area that I went to. And I wasn't a qualified teacher, right? I had not done elementary education as my, as my background in, in college. So there were a limited number of places in Latin America that were looking to hire basically unqualified people who were fluent English speakers. Yeah. The idea was is that you'd be a second person in a cl- in a classroom along with a qualified teacher and just exposing kids to native English speakers and learning as you go. Um, so I'm assuming that kind of thing still exists. So I would say Google around for um, teaching abroad at American schools because that does that was definitely the way I, I ended up there. And did you have pretty solid Spanish whenever you went, or is that where you really developed your language skills? I had solid Spanish before I went. Uh, I studied abroad in Chile as part of my undergrad education, and that's where I picked up my Spanish, and I picked up a horrible Chilean accent, because in Chile, they they cut off their S's, so they'll say, like, mame no no ma, instead of mas o menos no mas, right? Like, they, they cut the, the language a lot. So I came back, and my Spanish teachers were all kind of horrified by my accent. Uh, <laughs> whereas Guatemala speaks much kind of clearer Spanish. I think it's often true in, in countries that have a large indigenous population. The Spanish tends to be a little clearer just because you have a lot of people who aren't speaking it as their first language. Oh, yeah. So they're speaking the high kind of, you know, what you learn in the school rather than what you learn in the home. Right. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. What was it about Duke that made you decide that that's where you were going to end up or or where you you wanted to go? Well, they're the the top five programs in Latin American history is kind of where I applied. I ended up getting into Duke, Indiana and Wisconsin were the places I was choosing from. And Duke was the only one who was willing to fly me back for Guatemala, from Guatemala for the accepted students weekend. Oh, wow. Oh, that's cool. So, wow. So it was the one I could envision myself at because I had gone to the accepted students weekend. It also had the best financial package. So I ended up there as well. All three places have re- more reasonable cost of living too. So it was yeah. doable to do things on a graduate student stipend. I think you are the third Duke PhD we've had on. Yeah. yeah. So, uh. Yeah. And that's kind of why it's embarrassing to be do call myself a military historian because Duke has such a wonderful military history program, or at least yeah. had a wonderful military history program. And I didn't participate in it, right? Again, yeah. if I were to have, if I were to know what I would end up writing about, I would have taken totally different coursework in my graduate career than I did. Oh, I think you're not you're not alone. Um, uh, you know, Ohio State was the same way. They had great military historians, and I I was doing uh, German history. Um, I mean, I, I had good relationships with with all those people, but yeah, um, I I had kind of the same experience. So you get done at Duke, and there's something on your CV that uh, is really interesting to me. You got the Mellon grant, and you go back to your undergrad institution. That had to be a pretty interesting situation to go back as as doctor how many people were still around that had been there when you were undergrads i mean was it weird going back there or is it something you wanted to do 
Oh, it was fun. It was definitely something I wanted to do. Um, I mean, in part, I did it because, you know, I didn't get a job before I finished my PhD and that it opened up. So Duke has, I'm not Duke, uh, Bowdoin has a very generous uh, sabbatical policy. The faculty get sabbaticals more often than the rest of us. And they... (laughs) They hire visiting professors to fill in the classes while they're gone. And so they this Mellon fellowship was a visiting, basically a visiting professorship that they had gotten funded through Mellon. And so it meant I taught a reduced course load and I had some, some money to use for research, which was great. I wasn't a history major undergrad, so that was easier to go back for that because I hadn't taken classes from a lot of my colleagues. Uh, the only classes I had taken in the history department were from Alan Wells, who was the person I was replacing and who's been a mentor to me over the years and who I've kept in really close contact with. And then Matt Lassiter, who's now at Michigan, was a visiting professor at Bowdoin when I was an undergrad there. And so he and he was gone by then. So basically, I hadn't had class with any of the people who were my colleagues. So it wasn't it wasn't that weird. People in the Spanish department and other departments where where I had had classes, it was kind of nice to see them. And it was maybe a little a little odd, but it was it was it was neat to be back. And it was neat to tell students, you know, I graduated from here a decade ago Um, and and to see how the campus had changed over time. That would be weird to 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 go back um, (laughs) in that different position. I noticed you don't have an MA listed on your CV. Do you, does Duke just kind of like not do it? So Duke does do MAs. I did not get one because my advisor and I had a little bit of a, of a dispute over the quality of my papers that I was would have been submitting for the MA. And so we just, the topic, I was writing about this indigenous Congress that happened in 1945 in Bolivia. And that was the MA research I had done before I did my my graduate project. And he he just wasn't wasn't happy with those papers. I think we were having a little bit of a dispute of how to figure out Bolivia 1940s has a, a military dictatorship that's run by a guy named Bio Royale. And there's the MNR, which comes to power in 52, has some ties to fascism and fascist ideology. And I think he didn't know enough about it and there wasn't enough secondary literature for me to be able to comfortably talk about how how their ideology was working and so he was just like meh and so we just let the ma go and moved on to the phd that's that's really interesting that i think you're the only person i know that has a phd and not an ma that is uh and i'm also thinking that i should be a lawyer because I feel like a process. I feel like a prosecutor. It's like Dr. Shesko. I noticed on your CV that you yes. don't you don't have an MA listed here. You you're a good prosecutor. I was more just interested if you know if because a lot of places like, I mean at Ohio State they they didn't really they just kind of like handed it out if you stayed in the program it was like okay here's my thesis now I'm going to expand this into the PhD but uh but yeah they usually do go through that process of saying like oh here's you know here it is so um yeah and if I had decided not to finish the PhD they would have given me the MA right yeah. but yeah like it wasn't worth the kind of relationship stuff that would have needed to happen to get the MA finished and it was like time to move on to my prelims and my PhD. And, and he was happy with my work. He just wasn't comfortable with those papers. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to worry about this right now. I'm just moving on. Yeah. 
Hey, before uh, before I hand it over to Bill, uh, I was going to say this earlier. We have a colleague uh, named Alavi Ahrens uh, who has been teaching at uh, what is now Georgia Southern. He started at Armstrong uh, University since 1974, and he was at Harvard in the Russian um, history program at the time your father would have been there. So I'm going to ask Alavi. Um, oh, I bet if, you're if right. He, I bet he knew yeah. your father. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he should also see if he knows my uncle who was in political science, but in Russian, <clears throat> Russian political science at the time. His name is Alfred DeMeo. Okay, hmm. Alfred and He's it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. He was my dad's best friend and ended up marrying my mom's sister. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Okay, there was an interesting double date then at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a story there. There's a story there. I bet we all went bowling or something. Liz, I want to ask you about Conscript Nation. One, you know, how, how did you get into that particular experience uh, for Bolivia? So I came to graduate school with questions about indigenous people within a nation state, right? So living in Guatemala, especially teaching at this very wealthy elite private school, I would see a lot of indigenous people, particularly indigenous women, because they tend to be more marked, right? Indigenous, you commonly hear like indigeneity is marked as feminine, right? And indigenous women are tend to be more marked than indigenous men. So I would see a lot of indigenous women who were working for these families that went to the private school and picking up the kids, nannies, et cetera. And I'd see them on the streets, um, when I was moving around Guatemala City, most of them were working as maids in wealthier neighborhoods. And I really became interested as I learned more about Guatemala in how one functions as an indigenous person within a nation state, right? Like how those multiple conflicting layers or perhaps conflicting layers of identity work. So I went to graduate school thinking I was going to study Guatemala. And with this particular question about indigenous identity, I started graduate school in 2005 that was the year Evo Morales was elected president of Bolivia. And he's you know, commonly seen as one of the first indigenous presidents. He really brought those questions to the forefront. So there's a whole generation of Bolivianists who are about my age or about my amount of time out of graduate school who were drawn to Bolivia because of his election, which is great because I have a whole bunch of colleagues who are thinking about similar questions that, that I am, who are about my stage of the career, so we can, we're peer reviewing each other and writing each other's re book reviews and things like that. It's nice to have a generation together. So I was kind of moved over to Bolivia because of those events, and also because my advisor was really excited about advising someone who, who worked on Bolivia, so he kind of pushed me there too. So I started studying Bolivia with the same questions about indigenous identity. And then how I ended up with a military topic um, brings my, my husband into the picture. Um, he was a, a law student at Duke. Uh, and then we met when I first started graduate school. And after he finished law school, which was my first year of graduate school, he went into the Air Force JAG Corps. Okay, interesting. He was, he went down to Montgomery for training and then he um, was stationed in Anchorage for three years, did a tour in Iraq, uh, then was in Phoenix for a year. Um, so he was four years in the Air Force. So at the time that I was starting to think about 
what do I want to do for my PhD thesis? I was spending much of the summer with him in, in Anchorage and I had brought like, a, this was before, this was when you used to being able to bring like two suitcases with you without paying extra on the plane and <laughs> yeah. it could oh, be up days. to 75 pounds. So I yeah. had a suitcase that was like full of books. <laughs> so I was reading for my prelims and I was watching him go to work every day in a uniform. And so military things just sort of percolated into my head. And as I started reading more about the Chaka War and about indigenous participation in the military, it was like, oh, this is something where I can say something new about indigenous identity by thinking about the military and its role in a nation state. So I was really answering the same questions I had come to graduate school with, but realizing that the military was really an ideal vehicle to add to that conversation. Say, I, I listened to a little bit of a podcast last night, uh, the new books in history um, that you did. And you you said something that, you know, I've never heard anyone say before. It makes complete sense. And I don't want to steal Bill Sunder here, but you talk about soldiers as laborers and seeing soldiers as laborers, how, you know, that, that just seems like a really interesting way to look at military history. Yeah. And I would definitely plug that special issue of the Illwich, the international work, whatever working class history, because that whole special edition, special issue was about military labor and thinking about soldiers as workers and Michelle Moyd was in there and, and her work is really great and really thinks about those topics as well. Rena Goldthree is the, another person that I've worked with, Jonathan Ablard, like all of those people are kind of thinking about military labor and, and what it means to be working in the barracks, right? And the labor that's done in the barracks is often very, is feminized, right? It's the cleaning and, and the cooking and all that, that stuff. And then you're taking this kind of hyper-masculine institution and giving them all of the, these tasks that are both war related and that are related to preparing for war, but also just related to common everyday tasks that have to be completed for the barracks to function. Yeah. So how, how do indigenous peoples in Bolivia then fit in that? It's, the, it's an interesting question because if you go to Bolivia now, in many indigenous communities, you have to do your military service to be considered a full participant in the community. And that's really was the question I started off with. It's the question I start my book with because I, I wanted to understand how this institution that's also seen, often seen as assimilatory and oppressive came to be an integral part of indigenous communal life, right? So in many indigenous communities in Bolivia, you can't hold a communal post unless you've done your paperwork, you've done your military service. When you come back from your military service, there are ceremonies that are done over your military service booklet to kind of bless it, right, and bring you into the community as a full participatory member. So I really wanted to understand where that came from, right, how it became this marker of Indigenous manhood to complete your military service. And it's, it's interesting because when Evo Morales was elected, he used his military service as a weapon against his more elite white opponent, right? He said, I'm, I'm the real Bolivian here, right? You're calling me an indigenous separatist, but I'm the real Bolivian here because I'm the only one who did my military service, right? I'm the one who wore a uniform. I'm the one who said that oath to the flag. And so it's very much a class marker and also, a, you know, a nationalist marker for indigenous. So, so the, the swells are able to get out of the service somehow, or are, are there other universal service options in Bolivia or how does that work? 
There are now, there weren't okay. in the period I study, right? I'm, gotcha. I start around 1900 and I go up to the 1960s. Okay. Uh, there weren't other options then, but the Bolivian military is relatively small. They don't have space for every single 18, 19 year old man to do their military service. So there was always a lottery that took people out, which in my research doesn't seem to be fixed particularly, but people always assume is fixed. So maybe it, it was. And I just- yeah, Do you have a sense of what percentage would would win or lose the lottery and get, get selected for conscription? It really depended on where you presented for service. Okay. So at certain places you could go, like people would- People who really wanted to serve would shop around and go to a place where they would be pretty sure they would be accepted. People who wanted to be in a more prestigious unit, they'd be more likely to be get out of the lottery. There were also fake medical, ex medical exemptions for people. Um, there's also studying exemptions. So if you're in university, you have a good way of getting out of yeah. service, right? So there are a lot of ways to be exempt that wealthier people could take advantage of. And then there, you have the lottery that's kind of the, the someone needs to do a book on the, the history of gaming the system yeah <laughs> because well, that's it, what that sounds like that the, yeah you, and you know, you, people figured out how to game it either way to get out of it or if they really wanted to do it how to get in a better unit or, or whatever that's that's really fascinating that's right a, that's, and i'm sure there were networks where people talked about yeah. it right, and figured out right. which is not the kind of thing that tends to get written down so historians don't can't always study it easily. Now, is this typical of, of other South American countries or is Bolivia unique in certain ways? Uh, there, unfortunately, is not as much research on military service in, in South America as I'd like to see. Uh, there's a little Which bit of surprising Brazil. in a lot of ways, right? Because of how many military governments have they had over the years in various places? Right. Yeah. So there's more stuff on the kind of high military politics and not as much about the, the experience of the average service. So yeah, there's a little bit of work on um, on Chile. There's a good book on serving in Pinochet's military and the, the that kind of experience. There's some work on Brazil and Argentina, and I would say it's pretty typical for that, right? Bolivia is different in that it has this large indigenous population, right? right. Bolivia and Guatemala really stick out as the largest indigenous populations in Latin America. But they all kind of implemented obligatory military service around the same time and had similar experiences, right? Their officers are studying in each other's countries and visiting. So there's there's all oh, I, I had a Chilean officer in one of my seminars at the Army War College several years ago when I was the visitor there. Yeah, he's really interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and I, and I would love to see more work on that right the military is this yeah. kind of transnational institution where officers are visiting each other learning from each other right i, I don't yep. think we see as much about like how those networks worked so how, how was uh doing archival work there in bolivia how much time did you spend there and, and what was that like well it was a bit of an adventure i think his archival work always is so a part of this was my research was very strongly affected by the fact that the morales government in the united states were not friendly and so their Fulbright was active when I started in Bolivia, when I was doing my MA research, there were Fulbright scholars there. And there was a whole scandal in that the embassy was saying some things to people that made some people in the Fulbright group feel like they were being asked to spy on Bolivia and went to the press about it. And so Fulbright shut down for several years and then it was reestablished, but it was 
going out of Peru. So, so did they bug your your apartment like they did your dad? In the Soviet no, Union? but I have had a lot of jokes about being in the CIA. Uh, so uh, for for you guys who can't see her, she just awkwardly looked off to the side, which she just <laughs> yes, right, right, right. I'm sure I haven't. Were you married then? You're no, married then, right? You I, weren't. Okay. I was, I was with. I've been with my my husband yeah, yeah. for a long time, but I wasn't. I wasn't married at the time. Okay, I was because if they knew that he was an Air Force officer, that that might have that might have fed the beast a little bit too. Would not have helped, no. Yeah. And so I did all my research on a tourist visa for three months at a time. Yeah. So it was three months one year, three months the next year, three months the next year. I ended up with that that foreign language and area studies fellowship for my main research year. And I did three months in Bolivia. Then I went to Paraguay for several months and looked at prisoners of war in Paraguay and, and seeing how Bolivia was being portrayed in Paraguay, which I never would have done if I didn't have to. Really glad I did it. Worked out really well, added a lot to my project, but it was really a necessity of visa issues. Then went back to Bolivia for the next three months. So that was an adventure. Getting into the military archives was definitely interesting as well. I started before my main research year, I went in. And so I'd like line up every day at the Estado Mayor, which is like the where the general staff is. It's the main barracks in Bolivia. So I'd line up with like other people who were doing their military paperwork and other stuff get in and like try and get into the historical archives. So I met with the guy who was in charge of it. He was a colonel, lieutenant colonel who was in charge of the archive. I kept meeting with him, getting the paperwork, and it took like weeks and weeks. And they finally let me in. This archive is mainly certified Chaco war participation, but they have like random stuff everywhere, like piled on the floor, total mess. The one thing they let me work with were the military justice records, which brings me to where I was with, with Brian and this military justice conference. And so I, I worked my way through and they were so rich because it gave me individual soldiers testimony about themselves and others, right? For desertion trials and abuse of authority and a little bit of everything, but it definitely gave me a sense of what daily life was like in the barracks because they talk about, you know, where their bunks were and how far away they were from someone else and like where they put their stuff and just all these little details of what their life was like would come up in these trials. So that was the main bulk of my research for those military justice records. And then on a later trip, someone, an archivist at the, the Congressional Archive got me into the Ministry of Defense Archives where I could look at Chaco War service records and then the conscription records Right. So these big military register books that have lines for each person who registered, which is where I'm seeing the lottery and people getting exempted and how people were being recorded. How were the archivists to work with? Interesting. Most of them were not professional archivists. Uh, right. They were non-commissioned officers in the one archive. Uh, in the other archive, they were civilians who and mainly what they were doing every day was, was certifying people's military service. So yeah. if you were running for office, you would have to produce documents that showed you were you had done your military service or you were legitimately exempted. So they were mostly doing that. And I was kind of a curiosity for them. And mm -hmm. so they had fun having me around, I think, yeah. for the most part. Novelty item. Yeah. Well, did, did anyone ever ask you? I mean, you know, you're you're a white American woman there looking at Bolivian military records. Did anyone ever say, why do you care about this? Yeah, they definitely <laughs> did. And I told them exactly what you told what I told you, right? Like, 
this is what I'm interested in. I want to know what the experience of Indigenous men was in military service. I want to understand how, and who knows if they believe me or not, but yeah, you know, that's where we went. And yeah, that's where the jokes about the CIA came in. <laughs> I, you know, I even get that as uh, when I go to German archives, sometimes people when I was younger and would, you know, be there for, you know, weeks on end. And people would be like, why, why do you care about this stuff? Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, that must have been really interesting. Well, real quick, before we take our faux break, while you were in the Bolivian archives, did you did you resolve the issue of whether or not Butch Cassidy taught school in Bolivia and was still alive? <laughs> I did not. That's um, it is always interesting that whenever I tell people I study Bolivia, the two things that always come up are either Che Guevara or yeah. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, right? Like those. Yeah. Two, I'm, you, I'm you sorry I asked. I'm about, sorry I asked. about which one they're asking about. <laughs> well, let's All take right. a break, Ryan. Okay, this is a maybe an easy question, maybe not so easy, but you have used the term Chaco War a few times. I was at a conference. I'm just going to be completely honest here. Uh, I was at a conference, I guess, back in 2018, and I, I told you about this in, in Berlin, and uh, there was a guy there doing a paper on prisoners of the Chaco War, and I was like, what the hell's the Chaco War? Have no idea what this is. And, uh, and and I think I'm not alone, Bill. You know what the Chaco War is? It, only vaguely. I mean, <laughs> so, and, and, and I know enough to know that it wasn't in New Mexico or Arizona. So, you know, I looked it up and I've heard you talk about it, but it occurs to me that probably a lot of the people listening, even though we do military history, don't really know what the Chaco War is. So you would be doing us a great service if you could, you know, just tell people what was the Chaco War all about. And more importantly, I know you think it's important. So what's important about the Chaco War? Because, you know, I listen to your other podcasts and you you talk about it being this kind of interwar thing between the First and Second World War. So what do we need to know about the Chaco War? Yeah, when I'm I'm actually doing an Oxford bibliography for the for their military history series on the Chaco War. So that'll be out there at some point. It was it was due a couple of days ago <laughs> and it's not done yet, but it'll get there. So so, yeah, I'm, I'm in the Chaco War right now. So the Chaco War is takes place between 1932 and 1935 between Paraguay and Bolivia. Uh, it's in the Chaco region, which is a scrub kind of scrub region between Argentina, um, Argentina, Bolivia, and Paraguay. And as many border conflicts are, it was at least in South America, it was due to poorly mapped borders. Right. So all of this area belonged to the Spanish Empire when things broke up into countries after independence. No one was surveying this land that was populated by indigenous people, lowland indigenous people. The center of Bolivia's gravity has always, not always, but mostly been in the highlands and the Andes Mountains. And so this area was very far away very remote and not something that was really under the control of either national government. So Paraguay, if I'm hope, have you ever interviewed someone who does the war of the Triple Alliance, the Paraguay, Uruguay, um, Argentina, and, and Brazil? We, we are ashamed to admit, to tell you that, that you're our first Latin Americanist, Latin Americanist that we've had on. 
we well yeah happy to have that distinction yeah. yes um well we should find you someone who, who does i mean we're glad it's you but you're our first one the name yeah. of this episode is going to be latin america does war too <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so the war of the triple alliance basically wiped out the male paraguayan population right it was it was a suicidal war for Paraguay. They lost a huge amount of their territory. I think I'm not going to have the numbers right, but women outnumbered men like 10 to one or something after the war. Wow. Uh, that's and, intense. Yeah. It's, it's a really intense, interesting war. So you should in, interview Tom Wingham or Mike Huner, or one of the other people who, who does that war at some point. Paraguay comes out of that war with, with its very existence as a nation state threatened. So when with the border conflict with Bolivia, it's really existential for Paraguay. And for Bolivia, it's, it's about pride. Uh, it's also about nationalism. Bolivia also lost a lot of national territory with the War of the Pacific uh, to Chile. And they had also lost some of their Amazonian regions to Brazil. And so they were kind of looking to recoup some national pride, especially for the military in, and they thought they could win this war easily. Right? Mm -hmm. Bolivia had German trainers. They had a much larger army. They were much, they had much better weapons. They were much better funded. And so they w went into the war with a, more confidence than they should have had and did not do anything close to total mobilization at the beginning of the war. Whereas Paraguay started off on like, we're gonna do this. War um, not not um, to interrupt, not to interrupt, but it seems yeah. that Bolivia may have learned that from their German supervisors. Well, <laughs> and in, so going... <laughs> the interesting thing for the Germans out there is is that you've got this Prussian Hans Kunt who uh, participated in World War One, and he had done he had been like the main person training the Bolivian forces, and he gets called back during the war to take over after the war doesn't go very well at the beginning. And the other interesting thing is that Ernst Röhm, I'm not saying his name right, my German yeah, you got is, him. is not there. He, he also spent time in Bolivia, you know, as a, as a very junior officer, there isn't a lot of records about his work there, but he was also there in the, in the 1920s, I think. And so there's, there's an interesting kind of coincidence of people going on in, in Bolivia with the training. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Bolivia goes into war and they're really far away from their population center. Their supply lines are crazy long and they haven't done total mobilization. And this is a really rough area, right? Like water sources are key to this war. Having access to water is key. So many soldiers died of dehydration, mm. right? And just not being adequately supplied. And Matthew Hughes has a really good article in um, I think Journal of Military History on logistics in the Chaco War that I would recommend. Yeah, anyway, so Bolivia goes into this war thinking it'll be a cakewalk, and it's not. And they end up with a total mobilization. They end up doing well to a certain point and then losing. And then Paraguay is at the foothills of the Andes. And Bolivia does a good job with the diplomatic negotiations and ends up getting a lot of territory that they hadn't won militarily. Bolivia is also looking for supply lines, right? So they're for river access. So Bolivia is hoping in this war to get access to the Paraguay River, which will take them out to the Atlantic because they've lost their Pacific coastline in the War of the Pacific. So that's that's the Chaco War in a nutshell is that it's, it's a border conflict that has to do with kind of 
nationalism and existence for Paraguay. For Bolivia, it's about export routes. And it's also just about kind of pride and, and nationalism too. There's some political reasons that the Bolivian president gets into the war, which obviously backfire on him tremendously. But it's a huge turning point for Bolivia, right? You have a whole generation of men who are mobilized for this war and that come back shattered as men do from horrible wars. And so it, it kind of sets everything in motion that happens in Bolivia after that, where you've got military socialists, people who call themselves military socialists in power in the late 30s. You have that dictatorship I talked about earlier in the 40s under a, a junior officer, Villarreal. And then in 1952, there's the Bolivian Nationalist Revolution that is all kind of coming out of realizations about Bolivia and the Chaco War. So, hey, what, Brian? She sounds like a military historian. She does. I think, I think she knows what she's talking about yeah. here. I, I, um, yeah. And uh, I'm ashamed to say I did a secondary field in Latin American history, and um, I, I should have known more about the Chaco War, but uh, I didn't. I learned a whole lot about gender, and, you know, I guess that that – uh, serves me very well, but uh, and yeah, actually, in terms of kind of more military stuff, the Chaco War, like air air war, is a big portion of that. And then there's all a lot of kind of interesting weapons stuff going on because it is in the interwar period, and so there is a fair amount of interest. Well, and in we always war. we always with that aspect, we always go straight to the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me that the Chaco War also had those elements in it, even you know just just before that. You know what? I'm going to add that to my lecture because I I do just that in my world history class. I go to the Spanish Civil War. I I talk about you know the Germans are testing all this stuff out, but uh, yeah, that's I need to add add Chaco into yeah to that yeah. interwar period. Is it safe to say you think, Liz, that military history in Latin America really is potentially a growth area right now? I would say so. I would love more colleagues who are working on, on military history and thinking about the military because there is just so many interesting, even just starting with independence, right? And then the era that people call the Calillo era, where you've got a lot of kind of competing private armies under different people, right? There's so much going on with the, the military there and, there and it is not studied. But in general, like Latin America is less studied than European countries, but there there's certainly a lot to be done with the dictatorships and with earlier periods with with the wars. Right, we don't have a lot of good studies of the War of the Pacific either. So, I'd be yeah. curious to to know what the influences are. So where where so like you know take India for example when we talked with Arjun you know so. so a while back, you know, where are you getting where are you getting things from? There's there's homegrown ideas about military affairs. And you pull stuff like they pull stuff from, from the Americans, from the British, whatever. I wonder what influences in Latin America, in South America. You have a sense do of that? Need, do you need military influences or? Yeah, yeah. Like where are they getting their ideas on on everything from doctrine to weapon systems to operational things to structure organization there's a good good work by frederick nunn um from the 1980s i think that talks about all the foreign trainers that are coming into latin america in this right. era so in the early 20th century you have mostly the french and the germans are coming in and training and in bolivia it's interesting because none of these are official military missions the literature talks about them as like the french mission and the german mission 
but what what they really are are private contractors who have been brought in. Mm. So the French group that comes in in the early 20th century in Bolivia are uh, actually employed by weapons manufacturers. So they're mostly there to sell weapons, um, but they also do all this professionalization. So they are training, reorganizing the general staff. They're helping to write the military service law. They're, they're doing just a lot of things to make this look like Europe. And all of these armies are definitely looking towards Europe and deciding kind of who do we want to emulate. And they're sending officers to Europe to train so Bolivia has a French mission, what they call a mission, a German mission, and then there's an Italian mission a little bit later as well. I think those are all of the ones that come into Bolivia. There's a Spanish mission that I don't really know much about that comes in at one point too. So, and then by the Cold War era, you have the United States really taking right, over and right, yeah, yeah, official yeah. military. No, I, I can you know think of you know Mexico in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds with especially the German. The Germans who go there, and then of course the French influence, you know, after the American Civil War that period. But yeah, that's interesting. I I'm going to look all that up because that's that's intriguing. Uh, Brian, should we go ahead and get to our rapid fire? Let's uh, let's do it. It's been a good one. Um, okay. I you know I love doing this podcast because I always learned uh, learn something. And, yeah. Uh, oh, I got it no spades today. Yeah. Liz, you you really yeah. I I don't think I'm going to be able to take a nap after this. <laughs> All right, Liz, I don't know if you've listened to any of these before, and, and we won't judge if you have or haven't, but that, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll be okay. But we do a rapid fire thing where we ask 10 questions, and Brian will ask you a couple. I'll ask you a couple. Brian, we note that she has, she's in her office there, she's so she's office. got books to cheat on if she needs to. And that's okay, but we will uh, comment and judge a little bit as we go along. So this is just to have fun and, and learn a little bit more about you. All so right, Brian, go. Question one. Um, recommend something you've read recently that has nothing to do with history oh um her body and other stories it's a wonderful work of of fiction short stories that uh my one of my colleagues who is in creative writing told me i had to read and so i read it and i was like oh i haven't read fiction forever this is amazing is this something that uh what age are we talking is it appropriate for it's adult it's adult okay all right so it's not erotic but it's a okay it's Re- recommend to thing. my uh recommend to my to my wife then okay best work of history you've recently read let's see i what did i she's looking I'll go with, um, I'll plug my my colleague, Carmen Solis, who wrote a book called Fields of Revolution, Fields of Revolution about the MNR and about the revolution and the land reform. And it's a great book. All right. This is my, my favorite question for season two that Brian came up with. You get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? I'm going to say the Indigo Girls, which may be very embarrassing, but it's no, what I come up with. not at all. Not at um, all. It's kind of the, the you know soundtrack of my of my growing up, and I was thinking about it recently because I was just talking about this trip to North Dakota that I took, and we saw the the mouth of the Mississippi, and all I could hear was this Indigo Girls, girls Indigo yeah. Girls song called Ghost, which talks about the Mississippi being mighty and starting in Minnesota. I, I was going to say I can sing that the Mississippi. I can too. <laughs> starts in Minnesota. With a something you can, uh, yeah, okay. At a right. place I, that you could walk across from with, five steps down or something yep. like no, that. No, I think yep. that's a that's a good choice because their 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 catalog covers the the range of of I think human emotion. You know, if you had to listen to that for the rest of your life, you'd be able to, uh, you know, 
go go wherever you wanted with it, depending on how you felt. I I and, I, I like that. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. That's Athens, Georgia product, right? Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, I think the Indu Girls were yeah. uh, were you know started up in Athens. All yep. right. All right. Uh, what are you binge watching? Um, I've actually been back on Star Trek: The Next Generation, which is again a very embarrassing answer. But <laughs> okay, that fast. we will say is an embarrassing answer. Yes, that's. I think it's on at nine o'clock on actual television where I live, and you know what? It's it's one of those things I can do while I'm like doing a little bit of work, and I'll put it on in the background, and it makes me feel like I am you know twelve again, and it gives me a little bit of nostalgia. I used to, I will admit, um, I used to leave my TV on as I would fall asleep when I was a kid and Star Trek Next Generation was always on at, you know, like 11 or whatever, uh, whenever I was falling asleep. Okay, let's say I have one day in La Paz. What do I have to eat? What's your recommendation? You should eat guinea pig. Wow. Okay. That is the the kind of tr- very very traditional indigenous food that you would you would have in La Paz, as people would always say, tastes like chicken. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely the most interesting thing and unique thing you would you would get there. So okay. can, does does it always come out looking like a guinea pig, or can you get it like in a taco? I have only seen it looking like a guinea pig. Okay. But that doesn't so- mean it isn't. They don't do more creative ways now because it unfortunately I just say if they time. serve this at the Texas State Fair, they would deep fry it. Yeah. Deep fried guinea pig. Or sure it tastes good. Or I mean and, and I'm this is less facetious. I, I can see it like mole or something like that, some sort of chocolatey spicy sauce maybe. Yeah Bolivia is not a very spicy okay cuisine. It tends to be you know not bland, but it's definitely not not a place where you get really spicy food. I don't know, guinea pig dipped in chocolate. I mean, good though. I, yeah. I grew I grew up eating snapping turtles. I can probably handle <laughs> guinea pig. <laughs> All right. Will Duke basketball survive the departure of Coach K? I hope so. <laughs> I know. So, you know, I, I camped out for basketball tickets when I was at Duke because I, I was not a sports person growing up. I didn't come from a sports family. And I was like, well, this will be, a, there's a, it's a weekend where you camp out as a graduate student to get tickets. I was like, this will be a nice way to meet other graduate students. We'll do it as a group. And then I became a rabid Duke basketball fan because I started going Cameron and going games. It's an experience, like, wow. isn't it? I mean, this is amazing. It on TV, but if you, I, I've, we, we got to go to one game at Cameron. Uh, Wofford played them and we got to go and it was just, it was amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. a great experience. But so John Shire was a player when I was a graduate student. And so, like, it's really hard for me to imagine him filling Coach K's shoes. I really yeah, hope yeah. he can, but I have to say I'm skeptical. So I would say no. Don't kill okay. me. I, well, I, I appreciate that. That's yeah. uh, you're honest there. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite Spanish language expression? Um, hmm. so I'll what's go your, with Dios mio, but that's not good. The, that's the to say, yeah, what's your oy vey or whatever, right? Our, uh, our not fit for for people to to say on air so i won't i won't swear in spanish for you but yeah no i i don't have a good answer for that one all right fine fine <laughs> okay this is really important tim hortons or dunkin donuts i'm a dunkin donuts girl i'm, yeah. from, I'm from massachusetts yeah. i gotta go with dunkin yeah um but i do like that tim hortons is up here and i do like my timmy's like the the little Yep. Donuts. I'm uh, yeah. a big fan of Timmy's. 
So I knew that with you being from Needham, that you would have grown up on Dunkin' Donuts. And, you know, from the time I spent in Ohio, I knew that pretty much everything north of Columbus, Ohio, you started really getting a whole lot of Tim Hortons in there. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is a, a Tim Hortons in Glasgow. Really? Yeah, in Glasgow. I knew that. Yeah, I, I took a I took a picture of it and sent it to Mike Pavlik. Maybe it's um, a curling connection. Could be. Could be. I know Tim Hortons like is a big curling sponsor, and so maybe because like they do all the sponsoring for curling, it made sense to open something. In yeah, Scotland. could yeah, it could be. But I, I it was, we turned a corner and there was a Tim Hortons. I was like, wow. And of course we went in. You know, okay. We now uh, this is how do you identify yourself, Bay Stater or Mass Hole? Mass hole, definitely mass hole. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> it's great because you know there's no it's not even offensive to you know people who embrace it. It's like, oh, I'm a mass hole. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've heard that though, because I just haven't been, you know, it's been decades since I lived in New England. So I don't yeah. I don't definitely a mass hole. That's a good one. All right. The the biggest question, the most important question we ask uh, comes from our Bill and my, my love of barbecue. He's from Texas. I'm from South Carolina. For me, it's pork. For him, it's brisket, where while we do appreciate the other um, the, the other variety for you is barbecue brisket or pork. First off. Pork. It is pork. OK. All right. And in greater Detroit, do you want to uh, give a shout out to any uh, any place that you go for barbecue? Yes, Woodpile in Clawson has good barbecue, okay. and they have some great name. They have like and they have Carolina. They'll have like Carolina sauce, like some good mustard-based sauces, and they, they do a good job. And they've got it's like a out mostly outside, and they got a big pig outside the front. So. Oh, that sounds like a perfect nice. place. Yeah. yeah, love it. Absolutely. All right. I'm gonna look that up. Woodpile, right? Woodpile. What town? What town is it actually in? It's in Clawson, Michigan. Clawson. Okay. So it's like probably 15 minutes from my house and it's, I live and this is the best. I'll have to put this in the podcast is that I go, I teach at Oakland university, which everyone always assumes is in California, right? Right. But we're in Oakland County, Michigan. And I live in Beverly Hills, Michigan, (laughs) 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 which, which is just like, could you get any more like, please? Yeah. Right. That is, that's pretty right. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I think she did. She did great, Brian. She did great. I, I, that was no good. Complaints there. Yeah. And, I, uh, you know, the Star Trek next generation thing is going to, that might keep me up a little bit, but, but other than that, <laughs> um, very, well done, Liz. You did great. You did, you did I great. had a lot of fun. It was really a blast talking to you guys. I can't wait to hear it. Well, Liz, thanks a lot. This is great. Thank you. Quite great to meet you and everything. And, and cool. cool. Well, thank you guys so much. All right. All right. Thanks, Have Liz. A good one, Liz. Take care. Enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Thanks. Yes. You too.
Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not B.J. Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.